This is episode 29 of the Bible Lab Podcast. You are listening to the Bible Lab Podcast, recorded before a very lively audience on the campus of Loma Linda University. Here's your host, Roy Ice. Hi, friends. I am so thankful that we're going on this journey together. I've been having so much fun going through Jesus's very first sermon. I hope you have too. From the feedback that I've received so far, a lot of you are being able to see Christ in a way you've never seen him before. And me too. This is really doing something incredible in my own heart. If you ever get a chance, share with your friends this podcast that you're listening to. Let them know how it's changing your life and just the fact of looking at God instead of just looking at the fallacies of man, just looking at God and opening up God's Word and seeing who He really is. It really is life-changing, and so share it if you can. Also want to remind you, head on over to our website, thebiblelab.com. Make sure you get your study guide so you can follow along and see where we're going and see even some of the questions we don't get to. There's always some of those, and it usually ends up being on the backside of the study guide. But I'm excited to share this next journey with you in this next step of looking at Jesus's first sermon. He goes into another example of what does it mean to live a life where your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And he really unpacks it in a quite uncomfortable topic today. We wrestled with it. I know you're going to wrestle with it too. But in the end, it's amazing to see the consistency of God and what he's trying to tell us he wants us to be. So I invite you to sit forward, get ready, take some notes, because God has a special message specifically for you. Welcome to the Bible Lab. Here we go. Number one, yes or no. Number one, when a man brings his wife flowers for no reason, there's a reason. Yes or no? Oh, look at this. All the men are saying no. All the women are saying yes. No, it looks like, it looks like about 60% yes. Uh, and uh, a bunch of you men are saying no, no, no. It's just, I, I just think of you all the time. And I pick these on the way home. Off of a tombstone. <laughs> Number two. Marriage seems to be less important to kids today than it did to my grandparents. Marriage seems to be less important today than it did to my grandparents. Wow, look at this. Predominantly, yes. Looks like about uh, 97% yes. A few no's and the rest, maybes. Wow, so you think that the actual importance of marriage has been degraded in just a couple of generations here. All right, we'll talk about that. A lot more in our conversation. Number three, women cannot complain about harassment when they dress seductively. Women cannot complain about harassment when they dress seductively. You guys are a little slower on this one, but oh my word, are we mixed in this crowd. Okay, I am seeing about 30% yes and about 50% maybe because nobody wants, nobody wants to be honest today. And the rest of you know. All right. I can hear you now. I, I can hear your thoughts. All right. Number four. 
Husband should have the deciding vote in any and all divorces. <laughs> you were so fast on that, ladies. <laughs> the men were a little slower, but the ladies, boing, no. And so I'm saying about 99% no and a couple of maybes because the guys don't want to get stoned after this conversation. <laughs> Someone said, yep. <laughs> all right. It'd be interesting to see the, the culture during the time of Jesus, how they approach this. And, uh, and for those of you that think time has not changed, um, you're going to see that uh, our culture definitely has. Number five, when a man opens a car door for his wife, it's either a new car or a new wife. <laughs> oh, it's a mixed crowd. It looks like... <laughs> Of course, all the men are raising. No, I don't see a, is there, is there a, is there a single man um, raising a guest card on that? If so, he is a single man, yes. <laughs> all right. We're going to have a great conversation today because as we continue walking through this incredible sermon, Christ's introduction uh, to his growing fan base, everyone finds out that Jesus is going to speak up on the mount, and so they gather around. They come to hear. What is this guy all about? He's already done several things. He's already healed a man's withered hand. He's already spoken calmly into the demoniacs and cast them out and cast out all sorts of diseases by a simple calm phrase. He's calmed the storm. He's healed so many that people are considering him the new magic man, and they hear he's going to speak on the mount. And so the crowds gather to hear what secrets he might share. How is he doing this? What has he tapped into? Who is this? Is this the next great prophet? And so they gather around to hear the words of the mouth of this man who says he's from God. And he starts out with his introduction, a humorous introduction, utilizing the construct of congratulations that's used for the Greco-Roman stories of guys that have done great deeds like slaying a beast. And the, and the Greek god looks down and says, congratulations, because you've done this incredible thing, now I give you a gift. And he uses that construct, only he uses it for people who are pushovers, those that let Rome trample them. And says, because you're letting Rome trample all over you, you're going to inherit the entire world. At a time when the people were looking for a Messiah to come to rise up as a military leader to overthrow Rome. He says, blessed are you crybabies. Because you're crying, you're going to be comforted. Not because you're doing anything about it, but just because you're crying. He goes through that and, and everyone's kind of looking and saying, what in the world is he talking about? And then he offends several people by talking about their saltlessness, which is a common phrase in the day that meant you're two fries short of a happy meal. And then he continues on to say, you know, if you really want to go to heaven, all of you, if you want to go to heaven, you got to do something. And it's not simple. It's easy, but it's not simple. It's easy because I can say it in a phrase. Your righteousness must surpass that of these Pharisees and teachers of the law right here. Your righteousness has to surpass theirs. The guys who have dedicated 24 hours a day, 365 and a fourth days a year to making sure that no law is ever broken. 
Your righteousness needs to surpass these guys. And then he goes into six illustrations of how to do that. Last week we saw his first illustration was about murder, anger management, and how your very words and thoughts in the mind of God is the same as you going out and killing someone. If you're killing someone with your thoughts and your words, it's the same to God because that's not the perspective that, that God wants you to have. He doesn't want you to think in this negative mode. He wants you to think in a positive mode. And instead of seeing the differences and all the things that irritate you about the person, he's calling you to love people. And then he shifts to his next illustration, his second of six illustrations. And he says, if you really want to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you need to look at your sexuality. And then in the third illustration, he says, and you need to look at, at your marriage. If you really want to surpass, there's a couple of things that you have a mindset about your sexuality and your marriages that in God's mind, it's the same as what I just talked about, killing people with your thoughts and your words. Many of us have read this or it's been read to us. And many of you here who are not on your first marriage have cringed every time someone reads this because it makes you feel guilty. It makes you feel in a, like you're in a spotlight and that there's something that you're just praying that God's grace can cover over because you've obviously made such a big mistake that Jesus himself mentioned it here and said, you're not going to heaven if you've done this. But can we take a step back today and see what Jesus really was talking about by looking at the culture, the language, the people he was speaking to, and the beliefs of that people at that time, I guarantee you'll stop cringing and you'll start having a positive thought of what you can do in your situation. And you can start living a life that your righteousness does in fact surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Let's read through it and then let's talk about what Jesus was really trying to say. It's found in Matthew chapter five. We're gonna start with the first illustration, adultery, found in verses 27 to 30 in which Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. And throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So let's start out figuring out where we are now so we can see where we need to go. What have you typically heard that Jesus meant by these verses? What did you hear either growing up or perhaps you went through a broken marriage and when someone tried to define what Jesus was saying here to you, whether well-meaning or whether quite spurious, what, do you, what were you told that these verses mean? Raise the comment card. We'll get a microphone right to you. Okay. They used that at our church for the youth especially. So not marriage, but for youth to keep their thoughts pure. Mm -hmm. And 
that was junior high and high school. You better pluck out your eye. This morning on the way to Bible Lab, I was laughing so hard at this, which seems strange, uh, because it's hyperbole that Jesus was using. It was a mass exaggeration. And in this medical community, we should understand, I, I was picturing Jesus, someone getting to heaven that's kind of like a kid that tries to do something nice. Mom said that her favorite band is coming, and I'm going to clean up the room because I don't want all of those people stepping on my stuff and breaking it. And so Jesus is saying, it's surgery of your heart that I want. It's not a physical surgery. So I was thinking, someone gets to heaven, God, I cut out my eye because I was looking at that woman. It's like, ooh, dude, let me fix that for you. And you over there, a eunuch? Really? No, let me fix that for you. <laughs> if... And I, I, I like where you've gone with this. You, you see Jesus' words as hyperbole and figurative speech, not literal speech. Um, there, there are those that did uh, go into this ascetic-type lifestyle and literally um, deny their bodies and pluck out eyes and cut off hands because they thought that's what Jesus was calling for, is a literal sacrifice to make sure that God knew you were serious about these feelings and these drives that were going on. It's interesting that you talk about this being part of the junior high and high school um, uh, ministry curriculum because um, I don't know, uh, all of us have been that age, and uh, I don't know how you were able to keep your hormones in your pockets, but it's very, very difficult for young kids during those times to deal with the guilt of someone saying, don't look at someone and be attracted to them, okay? So it builds up this facade that, oh no, me never. But on the inside, we get really good at hiding the fact that our thoughts run, run the whole course when we're attracted to someone. And so, yeah, I like that. Right here. I, I grew up, up back east, a little more conservative, but there it was like, oh, sublimate those sexual feelings so you can serve the Lord better. Okay, so it was based on your self-control. Get some willpower here. Okay, good. Jack. Uh, I was an intern at the White Memorial Hospital in 1963 when we got a call that we had an incoming. A man came in with his right hand and his left foot in a bag. He, he had read this verse, and we could do nothing in that age of reconstituting his physical amputations. Hmm. We sent him to the psych service at LA County. Yes, <laughs> oh my word. Oh, the fun stories that, that come up in medical <laughs> situations. Right, okay. one more right here. Yeah. I I was raised a Roman Catholic, and hell was real to us. You know, do you want to burn in hell for all eternity for a, a small, simple sin? But even to this day, a good-looking woman is a good-looking woman. Can I hear an amen? <laughs> I won't call out the... The ones that raised the Lovett card on that one. <laughs> you bring up an interesting point. 
You actually bring up several interesting points, but I will only touch, uh, touch on the one that has a spiritual application. God made us to find beauty attractive. He, he made us that way. Our challenge is that if our motivation is to not burn in hell, or if our methodology is you use your own best efforts, your internal willpower, ultimately, frustration, spiritual depression, and ultimately, moral failure follows. We talked several weeks ago about how if you invite the Holy Spirit into your heart, he himself gives you the power to overcome, to have victory. And ultimately, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, it says the Holy Spirit will produce in you, and the final thing it says is self-control. You, you can't produce this on your own. You cannot, of your own, overcome these overwhelming thoughts and drives even if you cut off your hand and your foot, you can't do it. I hit my teenage years in the mid-50s. Mm -hmm. That was like a different world. I don't know if anyone here remembers a little booklet called The Heart of the Rose, but there was a, a real emphasis on not um, getting at all touched by a man. And my mother even made me promise I would not kiss a man until I was engaged. And I sort of used that as an excuse not to kiss a boy that I'd been out with that I didn't care for. And it went, <laughs> well, you know. And it went all around the academy and no one invited me out from that day on until I got to be a senior. Wow. Wow. But I even, I even went to junior camp and remembered that they encouraged us never to sit on the lap of a boy. Yeah. Because, you know, you just couldn't turn a man on at all. Yeah. I'm sure you're not the only one to use religious beliefs to get out of doing things you really don't want to do. Because I know some people, if they sit on my lap, exactly. Over here. nothing happening. Um, we need to define the term overcome. Yes. Because it's two different things to be tempted and then to overcome mm -hmm. that temptation. We will be tempted all the way through. It's what we do with it after that. So you have to define that. Excellent point. Excellent point. And I think when we take a look at what Jesus is really trying to say, the gist of what he's trying to say, not only here, but compared to when he talks about it in other times, and also compared to the other illustrations, the other five illustrations of what he's talking about, what it means to be righteous. I think it's all going to make sense. It's not about us proving to God that we can be godlike. If we can be like God, Paul says it this way in Galatians, we nullify or do away with the need for the cross. We make the cross worth nothing. If we don't need Jesus to overcome and to not sin or to, to find ourselves living a life where pff, I, I, I'm doing pretty good. Unless you need the Spirit of God to do it for you, you do away with the need of the cross. So, what was Jesus saying? 
It's funny that he says the right eye and the right hand. Um, if, if he meant it literally, um, a lot of us going to heaven uh, would be missing a right eye and a right hand, okay? Uh, especially all the men, and you need to admit it. Admitting it is the first step to recovery. <laughs> Ladies, you need to understand something. Monogamy does not come natural for man. They are monogamous because they're committed. They're monogamous because they love. But even though a person gets married, they don't all of a sudden become beauty blind, right? They're monogamous and they're committed and they're with you by choice because monogamy does not come naturally. In fact, it wasn't until the Greco-Roman Empire had influence over the Jewish faith that the Jews became monogamous. Up until that time, they were polygamists. This was a Greco-Roman construct. I agree with it. I love it. I couldn't imagine having another wife to try to take care of and make sure that I'm not driving her absolutely nuts. I have a hard enough time making sure I behave for one. So I like what the Greco-Romans brought, but it is not a natural inclination of man to be monogamous. Your man, for those of you who are married, is monogamous to you because in his heart he loves you and wants to devote his life to you and not to a harem. But it's not natural. Back here. It seems like perhaps Jesus' main point is not so much about uh, a man looking as what the man is thinking because I haven't actually done the deed, then I must be okay. That seems to be his main point more than about um, anything else. Yes, absolutely. As, as we look at this, um, of course, Jesus isn't saying if you're left-handed and left-eye dominant, you're okay. <laughs> the term of right eye and right hand to the Jewish mindset um, and in fact, some of the more modern translations will say your strongest hand, your better eye, your stronger eye, whichever one is dominant, the one that you connect the most with. If your dominant eye and your dominant hand, which is talking about what you see and what you do, lead you to do things that are despicable, things that you should not be doing, things that just grow the guilt in your heart, God is saying whatever is dominant in you needs to be submissive. You need to take the dominant and make it submissive. So the whole right and, and right um, really has nothing to do with what lateral side of your body. It literally just means whatever is dominant in you. That's what it meant to the Jews. Yes? My comment goes, I think, um, with the next question, but relates to what some people have commented about. Um, in order to understand this statement and many other statements uh, of Jesus in the New Testament, one needs to understand um, the, an element in the language, in the use of language, in the speech, in the Middle East, even today. In my trip so to <laughs> the Middle East, I, I, I have conversations with, with people you know, that, that grew there and lived there. And uh, there's one, and in the Bible, this is very clear. When they want to make a point, strong point, 
and they want to convince you of something very, very, very important, they use exaggeration. They exaggerate something, and Jesus uses that all the time. Like, for example, you know, it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the needle and then. That's an exaggeration. You know, if you mislead one of these children, it would be better for you to tie a, a, a millstone around your hand. That's an exaggeration. And I believe that Jesus here, obviously, is exaggerating. Why? He's, he's saying this is extremely important. And in the Middle East language, mindset and language, when you want to make a strong point and convince somebody, you exaggerate. Um, I don't think he at all expects us to be, you know, um, losing eyes and, and like the brother said there, you know, in the, in the hospital, you know, come on. Jesus is not saying that, but at least uh, at the same time he's saying this is the most important thing. Watch how you think, your thoughts. Absolutely. I love that. And you're absolutely correct. Uh, most of the commentators that I read, and I read about 30 or 40 um, this past week on this, they all agree. This is hyperbole. This is exaggeration. In no way is Jesus calling you to cut off or to mutilate your body in order to not sin. It's impossible for you in and of yourself to not sin. And ultimately, we've defined what sin is which is not necessarily a transgression of the law. Sin is a separation from God and not trusting him 100% to take you where he needs you to go. And by trusting in your own willpower, that would be sinning because you're not trusting in God's power. Exactly. So please no one go from this place and do any amputations today. Yes. Um, in some cultures in the world, the right hand is like your clean hand. Mm -hmm. that you use to like shake hands or greet people with, and the left hand is your, it's your dirty unclean, hand. yeah. Mm -hmm. It's your personal hand, I guess. So if you cut off your right hand, you're, un, like, you're not socially acceptable. Wow. You don't have a right hand to greet people with. or you're, It's basically, you're left with the left hand, which nobody wants to go near. That is so. huge. You know, I never read that, but I absolutely love that because that would be a reality in the time of Christ, if you were to do what he's asking you, that would be the thought in the Jews who were hearing it, is, well, if I don't have a right hand anymore, wow, that's huge. Thank you so much. Do you think um, when you hurt a spouse, is it necessarily a sin? Like when you innocently offend your spouse, is it necessarily a sin against God? Such as when you're just thinking, appreciating um, uh, a former girlfriend on, or boyfriend on Facebook, and you put a like. Uh, is that considered a sin against God? What do you guys think? I, I love it. I, I love what you've said. Because what we always have to do here in the, in the Bible lab is to keep it relevant to today. And what you're asking today is the relevance of what Christ is talking about. The way you treat people... What is the principle he's saying to apply here? Can I, I, I love that you brought it up. Can I hold off on a full response on that until we get to the backside? Because once we see what Christ is saying in the combination of his advice 
for those who commit adultery and those who get a divorce, it all feeds into the question that you asked. And so if I can have your permission, I'd love to hold off just a little bit on the response because I think it'll have a little bit more, uh, not only impact, but I think we'll have a wider view of what Christ is saying here. But thank you so much for asking that. Yes, Harvey. At the time of Christ, self-mutilization was one of the worst sins. Mm -hmm. And what Christ has suggested is one of the worst sins, yeah. which would just blow them out of the water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, so your solution for this great sin would be to sin even more. That's what it sounds like, hmm. which is a logical impossibility. Yeah. Which, which shows the hyperbole that he's speaking with. Him. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Harvey. Yes, ma'am. I was taught that you're supposed to leave, if at all possible, from the temptation. I'm thinking of a young man who said he didn't have a way to get home from a party that got a little hot. And so he went to the piano. He could play. He started playing hymns. (laughs) Killed the party. (laughs) For the first time in the Bible Lab's history, I'm speechless. (laughs) I mean... I don't know if he played Day is Dying in the West, but uh, I'm sure it was, that party was really hopping after that. Yeah. Yes. Uh, when I was serving in the military um, in Saudi Arabia, I witnessed an execution hmm. in the town square. And they caught a thief, and they hmm. cut off his right hand. Yeah. When that happened, he became a social outcast at that point yeah. where he was no longer welcomed or even catered to or anything. Mm-hmm. That is the same point that we're saying. Mm. Mutilated, like he just mentioned, mutilate yourself, you're done. Mm. It's like the worst offense yeah. to not just you, but everybody around you as well. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's true. In, you know, in our Contemporary literature, we have, you know, the one that has to wear the scarlet, scarlet letter A on the, on the shirt to let them know they're adulterous. Um, in Jesus' time, if you were a thief, you would have your right hand cut off. Is it possible that Jesus is saying here that adultery robs people of something? Is it possible that he would prefer you to live a humble life of saying, I am a thief? I I am a thief of something that can never be returned if I commit adultery. It's a huge cultural statement. Back here. Jesus said that if you look at a woman to lust, Mm -hmm. suppose you don't look look at a woman, you should not use your eyes to commit sin or use your hand to commit sin. If you have a mindset like that, controlled by the Holy Spirit, I think... You don't have a problem. And that was the tightrope that the teachers of the law were trying to walk. And that was one of the issues where Jesus says, depending on how you define that, because I understand what you're saying, but there were people who would use that same phrase. In fact, it's a very, very well-known documented fact. We have this from Josephus and other historians that state that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law Uh, were openly teaching their students, their disciples, that as long as you don't carry out the physical act of rape, 
you could picture it in your mind and not be guilty of that crime. If in your mind you undress somebody with your eyes and you imagined what it would be like to be sexually active with that person, it was okay because you did not yourself physically touch that person. So fantasizing was okay, but actually physically carrying out the act was not. Jesus has a problem with it because as we all know, and those of you who are psychologists, sociologists, all that, you know that every crime begins with a fantasy. These aren't spur of the moment things. And we also know, as we've studied workplace romance and all these places where consistently relationships blossom and some of them probably shouldn't blossom, it's because in those environments, it all started with a fantasy. And so Jesus equates those knowing that, especially for us men, for men, and that's who he's talking to. By the way, you notice he's not talking to women. We'll talk about why in a moment. He's talking to men. And men, how our, our, our brains are wired is we are wired to make sure that broken things are fixed. If there's something that's unresolved, we'll do everything to fix it. That's why, ladies, we frustrate you to death when all you want to do is tell us about your day and you're telling us about so-and-so and how this happened and that. And you're irritated, ladies, because we're here saying, well, why don't you just do this? Why don't you just say that? And our ultimate, ultimate solution, why don't you just stop thinking about it? <laughs> Works for us. <laughs> I can go all day without thinking about something. Right now, I'm not thinking about anything. And you ladies, you just want us to hear you. You don't want us to fix it. You just want to be able to let it out because as you speak it, it becomes less stressful. Ah, oh, I've said it. I got it off my chest. And now we're, yeah, but it's here in my hands now. I got to fix this thing. <laughs> Jesus is talking to a group of men who, if there's something unresolved, they have to fix it. And it's the same way in, in relationships and in fantasies. If a man allows himself to fantasize to a certain level, he will complete that project. And Jesus is speaking into that mindset. What Jesus is trying to do, in my view, is lead us to God. Exactly. And using these examples that he does helps us in lead us to God. And particularly among men, you ask them, what's the most sinful act you've ever performed or done or whatever it is? And it's always sexual in nature. Yeah. And I had a, I remember reading a novel one time, and it was about a guy, he's talking to a pastor and he's trying to, he said, what's the worst thing you've ever committed? And he said, well, I'm living with a woman to whom I'm not married. And he said, let me see. That's number seven, pretty far down on the list. He says, how are you doing with number one? Hmm. Ah, interesting, interesting perspective. I want you to look at something. Uh, when Jesus talks about if your eye uh, causes you to stumble, it uses uh, a word that is all throughout the New Testament. Paul loves this word, by the way. He uses it in Romans 14 especially. Um, but the word used is from the root scandaleon. Here, the word used causes you to stumble. The, the form is 
scandalize. Do you see a root word in there somewhere? It's where we get the word scandal from. Scandalous. It's also used in scripture as something you would put in someone's way as an obstacle to trip them. You put it there in a dark, in a, in a dark hallway hoping that you trip that person. Satan is the master of placing scandalion in our path. It's not simply a stumbling block. It's also the word that's used for traps. Like in our modern mouse trap, that would be that little tiny piece of metal or, or plastic uh, on which you put the piece of food, the peanut butter, the cheese, whatever. It's that trigger point. That trigger point that if you touch it, boom, the trap snaps down. That's a scandalion. Jesus says, if your eye is your trigger point, do something about your eye. Because if that's the thing to get you to treat someone the way God doesn't want you to treat them, to think of yourself and your needs over the needs of others, that's your trigger point. That causes the trap to come down and the devil's got you. So that scandalion, that part of the trap, is what he says when we translate causes you to stumble. It's not simply a passive causes you to stumble. It is that pressure plate on the trap. The old school, um, the old school traps where you'd have the, the, the box and the stick, it's the thing in, in which the food was attached that was attached to that stick, holding it up. Same word, same concept. God says, look, there is something scandalous about the way we naturally look at the opposite sex. God's greatest concern is not the act. His greatest concern is what's happening in your mind as you look at another individual and you don't treat them like a person. You treat them like an object. Remember, this study is not for us to see what the Bible says about man. It's to see what it says about God. And God here is obviously saying something very deep about his character, what irritates him. It irritates him when someone looks and says, it doesn't matter who I hurt, I just need and I just want. The greatest thing on God's heart is that we show love to one another. And is our love strong enough to care and respect for another individual so that we do not cause pain to them or anybody else in the process of getting what we want? Your righteousness will surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had taught it's okay. It's okay to fantasize as much as you want. It's okay to objectify. It's okay to verbally harass as long as you don't actually touch. Jesus says, no. What does that say about God? If you're representing God, you're representing me. And, and my greatest thing is when you interact with people, when, when, when they sense your greatest desires, are they sensing that you truly care about them or that you truly want something from them? If you don't mind, I'd like to move on for sake of time to the second section, verses 31 and 32, in which Jesus said, it's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality 
makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So what have you been told that this means? This is the, this is the tough one, isn't it? What have you been told that this means? Back here. I was going to take it into the next verse. When he said that, then the Pharisees and Sadducees said, kill him. They were very upset by Jesus using that reasoning. And I think all of his statements come together in 948 of Mark, in which he says, you know, would you risk this because you're going to go to hell where the worms don't even die. But it's also hyperbole because there's no souls where worms aren't dying from the flames eating you, but letting you know that what he's saying is the relationship is what will change it. I will never say she's not a good-looking woman, but my thoughts don't progress because of the indwelling of the spirit and the relationship. If I try to control it, never is going to happen. We'll always see the good-looking woman, the good-looking man. It will never be controlled. Yeah. But if we understand there's no worms in hell, <laughs> we get what he's talking about. That's one of those quotes that if you were to put that on Twitter, people would have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> now, uh, from, from time to time, we, we have guests uh, here that... Uh, really should be standing where, where I am because of, uh, of their gifts, their talents, and, and their knowledge of culture within the time of Christ. And Doug, I'm, I'm going to call you out. He's got the card right there. Pastor Doug Hart um, is from Minnesota. Go Vikings. And uh, we were talking earlier this week. He, he gave an incredible staff worship to us, talking about another cultural issue to really help us understand grace um, from the perspective of the Romans. And uh, he and I uh, shared some emails this week as we were talking about this very thing. And, and Doug, if you wouldn't mind, share with us the actual cultural concept of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and basically all the Jews during this time of Christ speaking, because they viewed divorce very differently than you might guess that they actually viewed it. And that will help us understand what Christ is actually saying. In fact, there's some words that we read right over, not realizing that it's a catchphrase, a title, uh, that meant something that Jesus was actually addressing. Doug, would you mind sharing with us? If any of you have read uh, David Instone Brewer, he's a, a researcher at Oxford, and he did a lot of really good research that's really helped me in my pastoral ministry on what, what was divorce at that time. They've actually found um, wedding certificates from a people named Joseph and Mary, interestingly enough, from that time, um, where there were four stipulations for when you got married. They were from Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 24. That is, if you did not provide food or clothing, conjugal rights, and from, that was from Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 24, then if you're not faithful uh, and honor your wife or your, your husband, then there, there was right for divorce. However, as on your sheets, it says the school of Shammai had totally um, skewed that understanding. And they did it from De Deuteronomy 24.1. You can look up Deuteronomy 24.1 where Moses says, if you find something, some translations say something uh, shameful or something lewd or naked, uh, there are a lot of different uh, translations for it. And the school of Shammai had actually taken that, and they'd said, well, why did Moses use two words? There must be something, 
And then the lewdness, uh, which is translated, I think, in the, in the Septuagint as uh, porneia. And they said there must be two, two reasons he's talking about. And they actually came up with the any cause divorce. And if you look in Matthew 19, when the Pharisees came and asked Jesus about his perception of divorce, they actually asked him that. Is it right for a man to get divorced from his wife for any cause? Uh, as Instone Brewer brings out, if we don't understand that background, it, it really becomes almost impossible for us to understand these texts that refer to divorce. Because they said, if you find any cause, that is, if your wife burns the toast or the oatmeal, even if you find somebody just more attractive than your spouse, that's a legitimate reason. A man could leave without going through the court system, without trying to prove that his spouse had broken one of the four uh, stipulations that they had promised. And even Philo and, and uh, Josephus say at this time that was the only divorce being practiced by the Jews. Was the any and every reason divorce. That's right. Thank you, Pastor Doug. This any cause divorce, like Pastor Doug just concluded, it became the only divorce. At, at one time, just before the time of Christ, it was about 70% of the Jews practice this, but by the time of Christ speaking this, it's believed that it's quite possible that no one practiced the understanding of any cause according to Shammai's teaching. Now, Shammai was considered a lot more conservative or um, rigid about his understanding of causes for divorce. Of course, because of the culture in which he lived, ladies, you'd have to be careful still because if you had shameful exposure, if you let your hair down, um, if you talk to men in public, if you caused another man to look at you lustfully, if you talk negatively about your husband's parents. Look out, ladies. Which I'm sure none of you have ever done. If you're immodest, etc. These were unforgivable. These were indecent. And these are the ways that they translated the words that Pastor Doug just talked about which were, these were the irreconcilable differences. It just wasn't going to work. Another guy came along named Hillel. And what Hillel did was he changed the word any cause to mean any cause. It was a very liberal reading of Matthew, excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 24, 1. It's taking Moses' words and saying, look, uh, quite frankly, if your wife burns the food, well, obviously, you're going to be malnourished. How can you as a man provide for your, for your family and, and be strong and, and healthy doing what God needs you to do if you're not eating well? If, uh, let's say, if you looked pretty good during your teen years, but uh, the 20s and 30s weren't very kind to you and now you look kind of plain. And no amount of makeup could fix it. That was grounds for divorce according to Hillel. I found you, find you plain and unattractive. No one is asking the women whether they find the men plain and unattractive. It's a different day. It's all about the man's decision. We had a yes or no question. A man should have the deciding vote of whether you go through a divorce or not. You all are saying, are you kidding? No way. In the time of Christ, 
there are some evidences of women being able to divorce their husbands, but it was under extreme conditions of showing neglect, of showing um, either great abuse or some very huge reason compared to these reasons um, that a woman could divorce her husband. But who is Christ talking to? He's talking to the men because the problem was with the men. The problem in that day was not the women. The problem was the men saying, I am going to fulfill my needs now. And during midlife crisis, I'm going to fulfill my needs then. And during this time, I'm going to fulfill my needs then. And it doesn't matter whether I make you a prostitute on the street. It doesn't matter because you don't meet my needs. My love language says I need someone attractive. My love language see, says I need this. I need the person that brings this into my life. I've changed. It's not your fault. You've stayed the same, but I've changed, and now this is what I need. Now get out there. I know there's no such thing as welfare. I know there's no such thing as food stamps. I know that you have no family in this town that I brought you to, but I don't care. Get out of my house. What type? of character could do that for any cause. And Jesus addresses directly that very title of divorce that it became baffling even to the Romans. In their history, they write about this any cause. All Jews were, were, were known to have these divorces just because they wanted them. No reason, just any cause. Jesus speaks directly to that. In fact, in Matthew 19, they come back and they, they want to clarify with him. Pharisees ask him, um, you said this, uh, what did you mean by that? And Jesus once again addresses specifically the any cause form of divorce. Many of us read this and well, for any reason, he's saying the any cause divorce has to go. It doesn't represent me and you're my people and you represent me. You've got to live life differently. There are reasons, and I gave you reasons. He says this in Matthew 19. I gave you reasons because of mankind. I, get, I let Moses have this exception because I know you. I know all of you are not unselfish. And I know some of you will get into a relationship that is toxic. And so I give you a chance to get out of a toxic environment. But my real goal is that when you get married, you'll experience the marriage that I performed for Adam and Eve. It's a beautiful relationship, two becoming one. All the words I said in Genesis 2 of what I wanted to have happen in, in a marriage, that's my goal. Is it the reality? No. But my goal, what he's saying here, my goal is to do away with the Jewish any cause divorce. Does that help you read this a little bit differently? Can you see the most important thing to Christ when he talked about murder and how you talk to people? His biggest thing is, are you hurting people with your thoughts and your words? He then goes into, are you hurting people with your sexual desires? And thirdly, are you hurting people in your personal needs and your reasons for why you're getting married or staying married? Are you so self-focused that you cannot love and have the distinct flavor of love in everything that you do? The most important thing to God is that in everything you do, you love people with all your heart, soul, and mind. Jesus says if you want your 
righteousness to surpass that of the Pharisees. It's not about doing things right and keeping all the rules and only getting divorced if it's this or that and only doing, you know, not actually thinking uh, bad thoughts. He says, no, if you want your righteousness to represent the heart of God, the number one thing you have to do is put other people first. To love other people more than yourself. To look at the situations that you're in that you could do something and never get caught. That you could do something and possibly be happier. He's not saying, I want you happier. He says, I want you more loving. And by being more loving, you will have the fulfillment of righteousness that can only come from God. And does he want you to be loving out of your storehouse? No. Once again, Galatians 5.22 says, if you invite the Holy Spirit into your heart, he will produce in you love. A love that you cannot have in and of yourself. And today, in this part of the sermon, I want us to take just a pause. And I want us to let go of any guilt that we may have thought is associated with those verses any shame, any emotions that are attached to those verses. And I want to take a step back and say, what was Jesus really saying? Jesus was saying, look, in these areas of life, will you please love? Will you stop finding loopholes, grounds for what you want, and just love? Love in only the way that God has expressed it to you. Wow, that was a very deep and heavy discussion. I'm so thankful for the community of going through that with me. And I hope that you also really are challenged this week to love people, especially in those two areas of your life. Now, this next week, I have to tell you, this is one of the episodes I have had some of our community members asking me for the last several weeks, when is this episode going to be up? Because in this next section, Jesus talks about some things that I'm telling you we have completely misinterpreted for years and years and years. When he talks about turning the other cheek, going the extra mile, and giving your cloak as well, Jesus is not saying to be a Passover. In fact, it was such a bold, revolutionary statement that the people were energized beyond belief at that moment. It's called Jesus's third way, and I hope that you'll come back next episode to hear all about it because I'm telling you, it's going to change your life. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Bible Lab podcast. If you're planning a trip to Southern California, make sure to reserve your VIP seats in the Bible Lab by emailing us at info at thebiblelab.com. Programs are recorded each Saturday at 10.30 a.m. We hope to see you soon. Until then, we wish you God's richest blessings as you continue to research and develop the character of God.